On August 30th, the Globe and Mail published an editorial highlighting the fact that Canada's foreign aid spending is in decline again. They wrote, after noting that Canada's defense spending is nowhere near the NATO target, quote, there's a similar yet lesser known international yardstick on which Canada also falls well below the collective goal, spending 0.7% of gross national income on official development assistance. The editorial goes on to conclude, Ottawa needs to further bolster spending on foreign aid because, they argue, quote, Canada's presence in the world, whether military, economic development, or humanitarian, needs to be backed up with adequate funding. So today we ask, can foreign aid be a political winner? Welcome back to In Focus with David Coletto. I'm David Coletto. On this episode of In Focus, I'm joined by Julia Anderson, the CEO at the Canadian Partnership for Women and Children's Health, or CanWatch for short. CanWatch has over 100 members ranging from NGOs, academic institutions, health professional associations, and individuals partnering to improve health outcomes for women and children in more than 1,000 communities worldwide. It has also been a client of mine for several years now. Joining Julia is Robert Greenhill, the Executive Chairman of Global Canada Initiative and a CG Fellow. Robert served as Managing Director and Chief Business Officer at the World Economic Forum. Prior to this, he was President and Deputy Minister of the Canadian International Development Agency and a Senior Visiting Executive with the International Development Research Centre in Ottawa. I'm thrilled to have both of these leaders on the podcast to talk about how Canada's doing today when it comes to foreign aid, what is holding us back, and explore the results of a public opinion survey Abacus Data recently completed for CanWatch on this topic. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Well, Julia and Robert, thanks so much for for joining the the podcast today. It's great to have uh, both of you here. To, I think you know um, your experience, your your breadth of of kind of knowing what's going on in the world and the work that you do, uh, obviously, is, is is incredibly important. So, I want to start our conversation by by each of you giving us sort of your take on, you know, where things are. <laughs> as you see them uh, around the world, as it, as it relates to international development, and, and maybe Julia uh, and Robert, you can speak to some of the work your organizations and you personally are kind of focused on um, right now. So maybe Julia, do you want to, you can kick things off. Sure. Thanks so much for having, having me on. So we've talked a lot over the last couple of years about the three C's. And then I think there's a fourth C now that we've added, which is, you know, COVID uh, crisis, conflict, um, climate and then cost, I think, is the new one that uh, has rightfully been added as the the framing for what's going on in the world. So we had COVID, and I mean, just to continue with the C's, I would add crumbling um, to that, right? With with sort of health systems, education systems, the aftermath of COVID really causing these secondary and tertiary crises in within countries, you've got debt uh, kind of pushing in on the basic need, human needs in many different contexts. And then the climate crisis, which we talk a lot about, we're talking increasingly in my work with women and children's health about the intersection of the climate crisis and women's health issues, children's health issues, not just in what is the next generation going to inherit, but what actually are the the conditions that are worsening in so many countries, whether you talk about pollution or other things, 
um, for people right now. So it's not, I think it's shifted from a future kind of apocalyptic problem uh, to a today's problem. And certainly being from out West, which has been on fire since since the month of June, um, that feels very real uh, to me as well. And then cost, I think cost is something that Canadians are understanding in a new way with inflation. But if you take the burden of increasing costs that we're feeling the squeeze on and put that in a low-income country where the government is, is, is collapsing under debt and not able to provide for people, there's no social safety nets, there's no kind of functioning systems, and what you used to be able to purchase as an individual could get you by and no longer no longer can. I mean, it's a really, it feels like a really bleak situation out there. And we can talk about solutions and how our members are really stepping up to the challenge. But I do think that the framing of, you know, desperate times, which I think probably resonates a little bit based on the polling with Canadians, um, is a fair assessment of the landscape that our 100 members are engaging in on a day-to-day basis. We're, in other words, it feels like your your assessment is like we are, we are worse. Would you, would you characterize things as like things are worse off today than they may have been five years ago? Yeah, and you can look at, at specific statistics and really see that play out. I mean, a place that Canada had tremendous leadership is in maternal health. And for for many years, because of Canada and the, the G seven and and countries all you know governments all over the world taking maternal health more seriously, you started to see a decline in maternal mortality. So these are maternal mortality is describing preventable maternal deaths. So things that we know the solutions um, and we just need to do them, and then you know people will not die. Um, so this isn't uh, this isn't complicated in that way. And we saw through investment that those maternal mortality rates were going down globally. And what you're seeing, if you sort of separate out certain contexts, that they're actually going up now and going up in places, you know, income inequality and inequality within countries is also playing out really dramatically. So actually among many populations in the United States, maternal mortality is going up, Uh, you know, and so you look at this um, and I, I think are we still probably overall making progress from a hundred years ago or things better than they were then? Probably. Um, but the thing that really keeps me up at night is that we have the capability to in fact um, address all of these challenges uh, and, and we just simply don't have the political will. So that's, I think that's, and, it, and that political will is decreasing. So I'm worried what those numbers are gonna look like, you know, on the statistics that I track in 10 years from now. I can't help but react somewhat depressingly when you say, are we better off than a hundred years ago? And you say, probably without, you know, there's no certainty there. That, that to me is like uh, a big red flashing light that, that on so many other things you could say, yeah, we, we are better off definitely than a hundred years ago, but there's large parts of this world where you're saying it's not clear. Uh, Robert, I mean, from your vantage point, what are what are you seeing? What are what are what's keeping you up at night? Well, I think the the points that you know Julia raised are are bang on. This is a very difficult time. I mean, we we feel how difficult it is for people here in Canada, but in other parts of the world, it's absolutely critical. 
and and bordering in some areas, like in the Sahel region of Africa, on on the catastrophic. Um, but it's worth remembering that actually we had, up until the period of COVID, two decades of really sustained progress. You know, in the early 1990s, at the end of the Cold War, there was this peace dividend, which came in part by just slashing aid budgets around the world, a lot of IMF-imposed restructuring programs, and a time of extraordinary misery and, you know, going backwards on a lot of development indicators in the, in the early 1990s. But we learned from that. Governments in the South committed to better governance. Uh, we in developed countries committed to increasing our assistance again. And there was a period of about 20 years where poverty declined to the lowest level in history globally. Um, you know, polio is on the verge of being eradicated. Even in you know, the killer diseases like TB, malaria, HIV, AIDS, which were out of control in the early 1990s, you know, are down by 50% or more. So we've made sustained progress. And then COVID came along. And as Julia mentioned, that caused so many challenges and stress, I mean, around the world, but in developing countries that didn't have the wherewithal to protect their populations, whose economies were already fragile, the scarring is severe. And unfortunately, some countries cynically used the COVID period to actually slash their support. So most obviously the UK, where they massively decreased funding um, to developing countries when they needed it most. And as we know, developing countries did not get equal access to the COVID vaccine. So that not only had a huge impact on their health and on their economy, it also had a huge impact on the relationship with the West. So there's a real sense of betrayal. So we came out of that with a real you know, vulnerability collectively in terms of what was going on, but also how we were perceived. And then Russia invaded Ukraine, right? And that's had huge implications because there has been channeling of aid away from the South to the very legitimate and necessary support for Ukraine. But it hasn't been additive as it should have been, both from a humanitarian and a strategic perspective. It's tended to be taking money away. So what that has done is in places like Africa, it's increased the misery, but it's also massively increased the sense of resentment. And we're seeing in the Sahel, um, one democratically elected government after another being basically um, taken out by coups with you know, implicit, uh, often Russian support um, and massive increase of instability. So that's kind of the context we're in now where it's not that this is inevitable. We can actually turn this around as we did in the 1990s. But the tendencies right now are negative and it will take explicit and conscious acts of political will by Canada and other uh, Western leaders for us to collectively turn this around, both in terms of the situation, but also in terms of the deteriorating relationship between developing countries and the West. And I think that's such a, a key point and something I want us to dig in on on this podcast, because we always on this on this show, we try to understand the sort of intersection between public opinion, politics, policymaking. And I think when it comes to international development, like it's it's the perfect mix where you I I my viewpoint as someone who's outside the sector, not in it as, as closely as both of you, it, my perception is. Uh, you always hear this, you know, international aid, you know, ODA doesn't get votes. It doesn't win votes it, it, unless you sometimes are going to propose to cut it as opposed to spend more. Right. Um, and yet I think and we'll talk about some of the polling we did in a moment that that the pub that that what we need is actual leadership that uh, you don't actually hear 
our leaders talk about this and the interconnection between what's going on in Canada, whether that be economic risk, uh, security risk, um, migration issues, and what's going on in other parts of the world. So we, you know, you turn on the news, to your point, Robert, and you does feel like every week there's a coup going on in Africa. And yet the context is, 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 is completely removed from that. So it's like these isolated events where people say, mm. oh, a military leader is just hosted uh, the democratically elected government and people are cheering and, and that's it, as opposed to understanding why I think we get there and, and, and how we're uh, can be both a problem and, and a solution to it. Um, so, so when I look at some of the polling and we did a, a pretty extensive survey um, in the last few weeks for CanWatch, just trying to understand and we've done this every every so often, you know, where the public is. And I and I and I want to preface what I'm about to say with what I I what I believe is that on an issue like this, where we know that most Canadians unfortunately aren't paying that much attention to what's going on around the world, particularly outside of let's say North America or the West in particular, and with so much focus being in in Europe and and the invasion of Ukraine, I think taking a lot of people's attention away from other things. Um, I still believe that that what they say to me in surveys um, is very much based on some perceptions, but is highly influenced by what their leaders around them say, right? And so I think it's important to keep that. So, you know, when we ask people, you know, when you look around the world, you know, what's the problems you see? Um, it's very clear. Canadians understand and are concerned about what they view as kind of poverty increasing, climate change effects, and armed conflicts and war. So they aren't ignoring or those things aren't breaking through. How could you not, I guess, is 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 right, there. Right. But if you add in three others, there's there's broad recognition that there's a growing sense of authoritarianism, decline of democracy around the world, that terrorism, although it's not as focused anymore, I don't think you hear as much about it. People are still worried about it implicitly. And then number six is actually... And Julia, this probably is, is hopeful for you that Canadians recognize uh, are concerned about the health and rights of women and children, right? That yeah. those are the six that kind of round out the top three. And what we find is when we dig deeper and we say, okay, are these issues getting better or worse over time? Interestingly, and I think this is where perceptions don't match. I think reality. People do perceive that that gender inequality, uh, spread of infectious disease, discrimination against two SLGBTQI plus. Uh, people are actually improving. That's the perception. Um, and then on the other hand, there is deep um, concern uh, and a feeling that things like poverty, climate change, cyber warfare, rising authoritarian are getting worse, right? So there's these almost dual mm -hmm. um, uh, dual senses of, of what's going on. Um, but but what, what stands out is two things to me from a political perspective. Only one in four Canadians say that you know, global issues are a key consideration in how they vote. That's not surprising. I think any political right. scientist would say very rarely do any foreign affairs issue, whether it be military, humanitarian, um, just global affairs plays into people's votes. But there is a broad cross-partisan, I would say, consensus that uh, that supports ODA generally. 81% of Canadians say, I support the very idea and the premise of it. Now, where our poll, I think, brings in some of the current context, people's anxiety around their own economic situation, worries about our ability as a country to pay for the things we need here, 
um, is, is really bubbling up. And that's the, that's this new context, right? In this cost of living crisis, people generally think we're spending enough on ODA. Um, they want Canada to pay its fair share, whatever that means, right? So they don't want, there is a, a reputational and a moral, I think, understanding of what role we should play. But there's also this push and pull, and we see it very clearly in the data that, that you know, at a time when people at home are feeling under pressure, um, yeah. the political opportunity to have a conversation about this, I think, is, is harder today. It doesn't mean you can't, but it, it's harder. And so the reasons why people think we should be giving more and be, inve- uh, be spending more on ODA is because it's the right thing to do. Um, we're in a position to give despite the challenges we face. And there's there's a reputational thing. You know, Canadians like, I think, the idea that we are moral leaders in the world and we should be leading, not following um, others. And then the the pulls away from it are really those those concerns about domestic issues. And we 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 did pick up a little bit in this survey concerns about you know corruption in receiving nations and the idea that that money is not maybe going down uh, right down to the people who need it the most. So you know the, the overall sense I get from the polling is you know there's no innate desire to see us pull back. There's I think an opportunity to to have a conversation about why we should be doing more. And I found it fascinating in the intro to this session i mentioned the globe and mail editorial right like to me it like that's something that you might see and i don't want to you know cast dispersions on the political orientations of our news organizations but to see the globe and mail right say we need to be spending more on oda not declining it i think is an indication that um, at least in in some circles the connection between what's going on around the world and what happens here at home is is very real and it feels to me that at times people forget how real it was just two years ago when an outbreak of a disease we've never heard about completely shuts down the world. And yet two and a half years later, we're kind of ignorant again of that fact. So I think, I think, I think there's opportunities. And I think the fact that you're having this conversation and we're having this conversation reflects uh, an openness for the public to, to, to hear from their leaders. But I also think there's, there's real threat in in that anxiety that people are feeling to to create political opportunity on the other side of this so so that's my sense of the polling I, i'm curious robert maybe we'll start with you like you saw some of those numbers you've seen the polling that that can watch put out and you've been and i and i'll say and i mentioned this in the intro you've had this unique opportunity and that you've 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 led the you know CEDA when it was CEDA. um and so you've seen it from the very inside of government and and how the politics and policymaking can play. What do you think the role of public opinion is um, in in the decision-making process in government and and how these poll numbers might reflect what governments can think they can do and can't do? Well, I I think as you you said, David, it shows that Canadians understand that the world is interconnected. And, you know, we shouldn't just be engaged in other parts of the world out of a sense of charity. We should also be engaged out of a sense of enlightened self-interest. You know, dealing with diseases abroad helps reduce diseases at home. Like if we want to eliminate tuberculosis up in northern Canada, eliminating other parts of the world, especially extremely drug resistance TB, is is in our interest, right? Um, Similarly, when it comes to investing in security, whether that's through defense or whether that's through helping to stabilize societies and make them more uh, prosperous and democratic, uh, 
Climate change is an obvious one as well. So people understand the link and people do want to pay their fair share. Uh, Canadians tend to overestimate uh, how much they actually invest. So part of it is just saying, actually, you know, you think we're investing our fair share. We're actually not. You know, this government talks a good talk, but even with the very important um, investments they made to support the fight against COVID internationally, this government has still invested less in efficient development assistance as a share of our national economy than any government in the last 50 years. Less than the Harper government, less than the Mulroney government, less than the Trudeau senior government. So in fact, we often think we're doing more than we really are. So first of all, I'll just say, let's do our fair share. That means we need to do more than we're doing now. The, the other element that is important, I think, is uh, to make it clear, it doesn't need to be a top three or top four issue because it's not a top three or top four spending commitment. This is a fairly modest commitment. I mean, we're talking about do we spend two dimes for every $100 of national income or three dimes for every $100 of national income. We're not talking about spending five to $6 to $7 like you would be in healthcare. So, you know, we can actually um, walk and chew gum when it comes to making appropriate international commitments while actually focusing on domestic priorities. My census with the polling and the interviews that we did with Canadians on an exercise of foreign policy by Canadians, which we did with CanWatch and, and others, was that um, there is the opportunity for Canadians to do their fair share on this, for Canada to step up, and Canadians will support it, particularly if political leaders explain why they're doing this and why it makes sense. So if they want to ignore it, if they choose to turn their back on the world, Canadians will probably let them get away with it, right? They're not going to force it. But if they choose to do the right thing and step up and truly be uh, responsible for Canadians and globally, Canadians will support it. And that's what it's always been. You know, we, we forget that the, the Marshall Plan, when it was crafted, you know, in, in the mid-1940s in the United States, the United States, after years of war, the last thing they wanted to do is spend billions of dollars elsewhere, particularly also with foreign and uh, former enemies. And yet... Secretary of State Marshall, who had been a five-star general, we forget, he was actually the former head of the U.S. Army, made the case, not just from a moral, but also from a geopolitical and strategic view, that by the enemy being hunger and chaos and uncertainty in Europe and us investing in solving that, we're making the world safer for us all. You know, that's now seen as one of the great acts of statesmanship in the 20th century. But at the time, it wasn't obvious. The polls were very uncertain, but actually... Marshall and other leaders across the board, both Republicans and Democrats, made the case so that the American people understood it and Canadians understood the equivalent that we did and made that difference. Similarly, in the early 1950s, at the start of the Korean War, then Foreign Minister Pearson made the case in cabinet to invest in the Colombo Plan, which many Canadians don't remember. But that was what, that was the start of our international assistance program that was providing some millions of dollars to the newly independent states of Pakistan and India when their political and um, societal stability was most uncertain. And Pearson made the case then, even as Canada was having to make tough decisions to ramp up for this conflict that nobody wanted on the Korean Peninsula, that we needed to find the funds to support these nascent democracies. And it played an incredibly important role, an incredible dividend. Both cases were acts of conscious leadership. And in both cases, the electorate supported it. That's the condition we're in now, um, where 
if Canadian leaders, hopefully across the uh, partisan divide in this minority parliament, agree we need to do more to stabilize the international situation, the Canadian public will be supportive. I, I think to add to that, the, the two dimes or three dimes on your $100 is the really important thing. I think often when we we set, you know, we put trade-offs in front of people through polling, through conversation at the at the dinner table, these are sort of the things that come up, These this idea that we have to do something here at home or we have to do something internationally. And at my, my entry point to every conversation, whether I'm going to go down the line of a moral argument, whether I'm going to go down the line of a um, strategic argument, or, you know, you know, there's all kinds of arguments you can make about the reason for ODA that are, are all true. But no matter what, my opening is always, Canada has to exist in the world. Like, that's just true. We do not exist without the kind of forest borders that people think people, things and money come in and out of. We have to engage in global governance structures. Um, you know, no matter what political stripe you are, we are a member state of the United Nations. We have to show up there. Uh, and, you know, and that's good for us, can be really good for us, can be not as good for us, we can argue, but the nuance on that, but you can't argue that Canada will exist outside of the world. You know, like we just, that just isn't true. And so then you have to say, okay, well, probably we want to maximize on some level um, our place in this world, right? And we really want to kind of have influence, have um, have the ability to, to do things that work for Canadians and that work for the world. So, you know, talk about China, talk about these big kind of complex geopolitical questions. All of that boils down at some level to having some influence levers to pull. And so if, if it's true, if we accept that it's true, Canada has to exist in the world, and then we accept that we need to make choices about what that looks like, aid and if official development assistance is a really inexpensive dimes on our hundred dollars way to show up in the world with our values in the front, at the forefront, with a long-term generational vision of what we want to see. So we don't want the world to work only for right now. We also want it to work in 10 and 20 years. And we're, as Robert spoke to, we reaped the dividends of that. Our generation, the millennials have reaped the dividends of that thinking from some some years before, right? And so, so we want to be kind of long-termist in our perspective, and we we want to see the world look better than it does right now, you know. And like Canadians, as as you said, the top six is women and children because it's really hard. It's really easy to picture a child who just by you know just by kind of where they were born, the lottery of birth ended up in dramatically different circumstances than the child in, in your own house, right? And it just, it's easy to wrap your head around that. And I think that's why it comes up consistently um, because most people have, you know, children around them, women around them at, at, on some level. And I think, I, I just, you know, when politicians come back to me and say, oh, well, the only time I ever hear about international development is when I'm door knocking and people don't want it. I'm like, well, let's work on our talking points then. Like, let's work on this conversation because to me, it's just a head scratcher. Like, it's such an easy, easy, smart, strategic, and morally compelling kind of investment to make. Like, why wouldn't you just say, okay, like, let's 
let's bring that up to 70 cents on the dollar. There's a great piece some years ago on Canada's overall global engagement. So like the Globe and Mail editorial, thanks for mentioning that. I was so happy to see that. Like that, it looked at kind of our defense spending targets, our international development targets. These are globally set targets. Um, and the this, I think it was like the size or scope of our diplomatic core. So kind of like, how does Canada you know, um, measure up when it comes to its overall global engagement and found us failing on all levels and really poised at that time a question about, you know, if that's true, how do we expect to get that Security Council seat? How do we expect to go to go strongly into negotiations with countries like China and actually put like an influential foot forward that doesn't cost us economically and, you know, keep people in jails? Like that's all about influence. And if you if you look at every metric of the global standard and you're failing on them, you know, like it, it probably doesn't bode well for those conversations that you're trying to have about, you know, being, being globally influential. So I think we've got to look at this as as Robert said, this isn't going to be we're not going to have truckers, you know, downtown Ottawa protesting because there isn't enough international de- development assistance although there's lots of um, people from all stripes and backgrounds that support international development, but it's never going to be, no one's going to march on Ottawa, you know, about this. But I also think that leaders come into their state's personhood later in their terms. They they look up and look out. And I'm really, I'm really pushing this government to do that. Um, and for, you know, Prime Minister Trudeau to take it up as a personal kind of like, you know, being on the right side of history from a legacy perspective, where we're, we're going to look back and go like Robert was referring to in the nineties or like after world war two. Yeah, it was, it, it felt awkward at the time to, to be up in aid when we were talking about cuts over here, but we got on the right side of history on this one. So, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm pushing for it. I believe that it could happen. I think it's, um, you know, I'm I'm consistently disappointed at, from kind of all around at the small mindedness that I see when it comes to, you know, thinking in this way, which to me just seems um, pretty obvious. Well, I mean, on that point, I think I think Canadians generally are disappointed in the small thinking on a lot of things, right, that are going on in this world and in Canada, and and feeling that there's no like plan, there's no strategy around what it is we're doing. And I think international engagement um, can be a key part in the story about what Canada is going to do in the next five to 10 years. And, and we just don't have that leadership. It feels like right now, right? No, no, no sense of direction because I think Canadians will, will get on it if it makes sense and you tie um, and you connect, you know, uh, choices we make here with things going on around the world. Um, so, so your point really is, is, I think reflective, I think of, of how most people are feeling. It's not just you, Julia or Robert, who are like engaged in this every day and feeling like you can't break through the um, the conversation. Robert, you're going to say something. Important thing also to communicate to Canadians is not only the challenge, but the track record of success, because many people look mm-hmm. and say, oh, you know, this stuff is endless and hopeless. Like, what can you do? And the fact is, um, international assistance has an extraordinary track record uh, with a strong return on investment and and a positive end game. So you know 
Europe <laughs> to think that it was the basket case in 1946 and where it became by the 1950s. Um, India, that's now hosting the G20 and is, you know, the largest democracy in the world with all its challenges has come so far. Um, and the Colombo plan and so on is now kind of in the distant history. It, South Korea, where we talk about the Korean War, South Korea was for 20 years a massive recipient of aid because it was rebuilding from, you know, tragedy and, and chaos. It's now, again, a, you know, a democratic point of stability and is supporting um, much of, of Ukraine with, with uh, non-lethal weaponry, but also helping Poland arm itself. So, you know, there's an example of where a country, and it's also a major provider of international assistance. So a recipient has become a major donor. And I think what we need to show Canadians is, you know, we can in the next few years eliminate polio from the planet. We can continue to push back on the onslaught of HIV, AIDS, and malaria. We could potentially in the next 20 years eliminate TB in northern Canada, but also in South Africa and elsewhere. Maybe Canada could be a real leader in that. You know, we could play a role in helping to restabilize the very difficult situation in the Sahel. And we could, above all, potentially play a critical role in helping the people of Haiti, you know, restore stability and progress in their country. So there are things we can do. This isn't just like, it's awful, let's pour some money into it and hope for the best. It's no, let's look at the track record of what works. Let's step up our commitment to the right level, the, Can the level that Canadians believe we're at already, which is just to do our fair share. And let's make some good things happen over the next five years. And then let Canadians know the role that they help play in making this happen. That's the opportunity for political leaders today. One of the things I've been thinking a lot about in preparing for this conversation is, is and I'm fascinated by what, like, what do Canadians know and how, how much are they exposed to things that are going on around the world? And this is kind of off your, your, your areas of expertise, but I'm curious as, as you try to, you know, you're, you're trying to influence the conversation that's happening. And it feels to me that as journalism, and I'm going to bring journalism into this, seems to be under a great deal of pressure. Obviously, that's an understatement, I think, especially in Canada. But you hear news of, you know, the CTV pulling back its foreign bureaus. And, you know, like, there's not much there's not much coverage of what's going on in the world. And if it is, as I said earlier, it's very cursory and 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 very shallow. It doesn't give the context. So so to me, one of the things that, you know, this is a longer term change is is what can we do to um support and create the environment in which people actually understand what's going on. Because I think one of the challenges we face today, and I and again I wish I had and maybe there is and we should go I gotta go and find it, you know, some kind of longitudinal study that shows, you know, are, are, are Canadians today paying more or less attention to what's going around the world than say my grandparents' generation or my parents' generation. And it seems to me that we know that, yeah, media is more fragmented, information's more easily curated. So if you're not interested in something, you're probably not exposed to it because you don't turn on the evening news, or you're not opening a newspaper in the same way. But it but it seems like I'm 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 curious your thoughts on do you find that 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 there is this that a lack of understanding leads to a lack of 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 empathy, which then leads to a lack of urgency, I guess, in in moving this right? You are all aware. You, you've mentioned multiple examples of areas in the world where we need critical uh, focus today. 
And yet, if I probably said that to Canadians, they could they could definitely mention Ukraine, but that would maybe be it um, off the top of their head. So so what what do you see as that? You know, because I'm 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 curious about the, the the how do you build the public support and bring them along? And I think knowledge, basic knowledge, is is a key part of that. Yeah, I I would add to your question the really important construct of trust, you know, and who the trust mm-hmm. in all institutions, media, government, private sector, civil society uh, is is going down, and I think that's a really that makes for a challenging situation when you're trying to get into more nuanced conversations because they take a minute. <laughs> like it takes a minute if you want to talk about Haiti, if you want to talk about Canada, what Canada could do in, in the you know to support Haiti, um, it, it takes a minute and it takes some time and it takes what I would think about as traditional journalism, those kind of longer forms investigative journalism where you you have a few pages to really get to the crux of a challenge and then and then lead people into the solutions. So I think this is a huge problem. I mean, the building empathy is, is about usually getting down to the, the story of one person. Um, there's some great work that's done on this of how to, in the, the world of um, uh, impact giving, you know, to really capture someone's attention, you have to you're better to tell a story of one individual than of an entire community, right? And that that kind of goes against, I think, where we've been going as an international development community. We've been going to the kind of a little bit higher level, you know, how are, how are countries faring, how are communities faring? And I wonder if getting down to the more individual stories addresses both, both that trust question because it's really a person telling their own story um, and kind of gets at what are the trigger points in human psychology, really. Um, I follow Sam Harris and he does great work on this. Like, I I mean, yeah, he has a bit of a critique of it, but it's, he accepts it as true that, you know, you get down into someone's brain through an interpersonal connection. I, I think COVID and, you know, when people probably engaged historically was when there was a a war, when there was, you know, if you talk to your grandparents' generation, like when there was a big moment that drew them out. And I think we saw that in the polling, that this moment drew people out and into the world a little bit. And I think it's how do we really capitalize on that to get to solutions, to get to the hopefulness that, that Robert talked about, to say we can actually do something about this. This can look different in five years. It can look better um, and kind of yeah, just engage people in that way. But, and I think the media have a real role. Like I, like I said, that Globe and Mail article was amazing. There's been a few on like journalists with human rights doing like this really kind of hard hitting journalism through the Globe and, and the Post as well. And I think we need the media in this country to be part of this conversation because it does create the enabling condition because decision makers are paying attention to that as they see it as a reflection of what Can- Canadians are interested in as are Canadians. Um, but I think I think there's a whole demographic in there that's hard harder to get to, you know, and and probably in the way we split out the polling, like those are the people who are actively opposed and they're probably not, you know, they may not be the readers, the, you know, downtown Toronto readers of the the Globe and Mail, right? And so 
I'm really curious about how to get to those people, not necessarily to change their mind or to make them, but actually just to increase the literacy on, because I, I want them as part of, again, going back to, we have to be in the world. So you, person who opposes aid, like what's your best idea about like how we can be in the world? Because your job 100% depends on us being in the world, your livelihood, you know, like all these, there's no one who's not touched by Canada as a nation in the world. So like, what, what's your best idea if not aid and what are your main, what are the main concerns with ODA and stuff? So I'm interested in getting to those people and the trust levers that go backwards. I think the media plays a role in that broader narrative and enabling conditions, but probably not to get, um, to get to all demographics. So I think we have to have a multi-pronged strategy. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I think, you know, in addition to the traditional media, um, a lot of the informal out, outreach by by influencers or by civil society organizations is extremely important. I mean, it certainly played such a positive role in the challenge, you know, in the, in the fight against climate change. And I think uh, that could be adopted also for some of the issues we've been talking about in terms of international assistance. The other element I think that is a challenge is, in a sense, the business model for many humanitarian organizations, which is when there's a crisis, emphasize how awful it is. You know, there's a earthquake here or there's a, you know, a typhoon there or there's, a, you know, a disaster here or because there's a civil war there, we need your assistance. And that makes sense because it triggers people's reaction, but it reinforces a sense that it's endless and hopeless. And it, and it connects with the point you were making that many Canadians think that money just goes to corrupt dictators. Well, up until this last and bunch of coups, you know, dictators were increasingly something of the past uh, across the South. And also international development is very carefully overseen. So, you know, there's in any situation, in any government, there will be some uh, leakage or corruption that needs to be addressed with, but it's carefully overseen and also the systems put in place not only ensure that money is spent well and effectively you can see the results but it actually helped strengthen the overall governance systems of the countries that we're dealing with so you can actually show to canadians that this money actually has a positive impact but when you look at the the fundraising campaigns all you see it is a negative part and that's i think where leadership comes in it's not only say Things are difficult here and here that we need to assess, but we do see that there's a tremendous positive track record. And let me just give a last one. Bangladesh, you know, Bangladesh was looked at in the 1970s is literally the basket case, as Henry Kissinger used to refer to it. You don't hear about it much now because it's got ongoing challenges. Every country does. But maternal mortality has dropped. Education levels are up. It's growing at 6% a year. And in the next two years, it will be what's called graduating from international assistance in the World Bank. It means it will no longer be eligible for getting non-repayable grants because it's reached a level of income where it can now actually sustain itself going forward through repayable loans and other mechanisms. So it is going to be one more country, in this case, one of almost 200 million, which will have graduated successfully and have become self-reliant, which is what we all want. What a great example. And I bet you, David, you haven't heard about Bangladesh. And I bet you almost no Canadians have heard about it. And yet Canada has had a 50-year program that's really contributed to Bangladesh's success. But because it's a success, it's not part of a fundraising campaign and we don't hear about it. That's the kind of thing we all need to do more of. Well, look, um, 
this has been, I think we could go on for, for many more minutes and hours probably. And I've, I'm learning a ton from you. I think, you know, my, a number of takeaways from our conversation, I think, Julia, your, your, your words of, we have to be in this world, I think will, will, will stick with me because we can't extrude ourselves or, you know, exclude ourselves from what's going on. We, um, as much as we sometimes wish we can in our own personal lives and try to isolate ourselves, that's not going to happen. Um, and, and Robert, your focus on like, to your story about Bangladesh or South Korea or any uh, of the, the amazing examples of that we have over the last hundred years that we could point to, to say that there's a really good return on investment, right? We, we, sometimes I know, and I've met with Julia and, and Robert, and many of your colleagues in the sector, you're, you're very, some of, some people are very skeptical, uh, hesitant to, to, to use the language of like economists or, or talk about it in that way, because it's so important. And there is a, there is a, a moral side to all of this. It's the right thing to do, but we also need to, to to connect with Canadians at the level in which they understand, you know, the the notion of return on investment and and connecting people's personal concerns um, in their lives with what's going on around the world. I think that's that remains the best way to show people. And I think as much as the pandemic is now in our in the rearview mirror for most people, whether it should be or not, it was that moment. And we saw it in our polling during the, the 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 pandemic that people understood that the world is small and that what happens elsewhere, even someplace we've never heard of, may never visit. I can't think of <laughs> put it on a map that it could come back to us in some way and make our lives both better because hey, maybe they produce a product we use every day. I think of South Korea, right, and the cars that we drive and all the electronics that we use in our life. Like that is a a remarkable shift in that country's contribution to the world, um, not to mention the things you said, uh, Robert. And then lastly, I think for, for anyone listening who, you know, is in politics or trying to figure out, um, you know, how to how to bring people together and, and build a political strategy, I think there's lessons here um, on how that fits into the broader story about what is Canada's role in the world? How do we um, use and you use the the sort of the three prongs, Julia, you mentioned, you know, our diplomatic core, our humanitarian and international development work, and then our military to not just position us in a strong, effective way, but to be able to achieve the things that 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 Canadians want to see happen in their own lives. So I think, you know, my goal in this conversation was to to get beyond um sort of the the the, the usual things that we talk about when we talk about international development. And I think, um, and I thank you for, 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 for sharing and, and, you know, bringing so much insight into, into all of this. Is there any, I guess I'll leave it. I want you to have the last word, not me. Any final thoughts on, um, you know, what, what you take away from, from the conversation. Maybe we'll start with Robert and, and Julia will end with you. I'll just say everything we've said and all the polls show that, um, this is an opportunity for leaders who actually want to make a difference and want Canada to make a difference to step up at this critical point. It's not going to be forced upon them, but the polling shows they will be allowed for us to make a difference. And that's, I was just going to say, that's often what we see in polling, right? There's not a lot of issues in which people are cheering for something. It's more about, I'm open to hearing and lead me to the place you want me to go. Really good point, Robert. Julia. Yeah, on a, on a similar note, I mean, decision makers have license to do something 
to put Canada and, you know, the individuals who are, are leading us at this moment on the right side of history and to really make a multi-generational investment in the kind of world that Canadians want to be a part of. And if you ask any Canadian, what, you know, what's the world that would be ideal for you as an individual, for your kids, for your family, they'll probably spell out the kind of world that international development is looking to, to build. And so I think that's the key takeaway for me is that decision makers have license. We need a good strategy. Robert and I have endless ideas about some really smart investments. He's mentioned a few of them. Like, let's, let's do something here. Let's do something that's, that's really important in the world. Can I just make one last point, David, which was I'd mentioned the Colombo plan and how important it was for Canada's international system. I didn't mention that it took six tumultuous cabinet meetings for Lester Pearson to get it through over the strong objections of the finance minister, who, like every finance minister, thought it was unaffordable, although it was. And my point then would be to anybody of any political stripe listening to this, you know, it's possible to make a real difference, but they'll have to fight for it and convince their colleagues, whether it's in the NDP or the Conservative or the Liberal caucus or all of them. And a minority government in some ways is perhaps the perfect time to build a cross-partisan consensus that it's in our interest to do the right thing right now, but they'll have to fight for it. Let's fight for it. Let's get it done. Um, Julia Anderson from CanWatch, Robert Greenhill from uh, Global Canada Initiative. Thank you for for the time, the insights, and um, I hope you have. Uh, we're, we're, we're recording this just before the long weekend begins. I hope you have a wonderful long weekend. And to all uh, listeners, thank you for joining us. Um, my name is David Coletto. You can subscribe to my Substack, where you'll get lots of uh, interesting insights into. Uh, polling and, and public policy and politics at davidcoletto.substack.com. And if you're interested in the poll that I referenced, um, head over to the CanWatch website. They've got uh, some of the details of that poll, much more than I shared here. And uh, looking forward to, to connecting with you again soon. Thanks so much.